0: This evening's reading is taken from Haggai, chapter 2, and this can be found on page 791 of the Church Bibles. Haggai, chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts.
1: Thank you, Wendy. And thank you to our musicians. Now, it'll help a lot if you can have a Bible open just on your lap or on your phone as we move around this uh, prophecy. Now, what uh, Wendy read, the words at the back end of our section, uh, really from verse four, yet now be strong, be strong, be strong, work, I am with you, my covenant. And then a very rare, as someone helpfully pointed out to me yesterday, a very rare appearance in the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit. My Spirit is with you. And then this extraordinary promise about blessings to come to God's people. Now, this is one of these texts in the Old Testament that you need to put on the black cloth it sits on to see how bright it is. This is one of the bleakest and toughest times for God's people, as I'll explain, and this extraordinary uh, promise. Now, what we're going to do, I'm going to run through this really fast um, in the context of the people then as they heard this, and I'm going to just say, well, I'm going to make one or two comments about how we apply this and then apply it in two or three contexts in our situation. So all the way through one or two bridges to be built and then application for the second half of our time. So let me just quickly uh, orientate us and if you have the bible in front of you it'll help but first uh, let's let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to really appropriate these promises tonight and store them away in our hearts. For your glory, help us to concentrate, to listen, and we pray that your voice clearly will be heard. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, the setting of this little prophecy is post exile. The people of God are back in Jerusalem. The exile, the big event in the history of God's people, 70 years in Babylon. Jerusalem and the temple destroyed. This is post-exile, just after the exile. The context, as I said, is a tough, tough time for the people of God. The exile is over, and a remnant had returned from exile to Judea and its capital, Jerusalem. But when you went back to Jerusalem, you would be very visually and powerfully reminded that there was no temple anymore. It had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar when he took God's people into captivity, destroyed in 586 BC. And the temple that was destroyed was the temple built by Solomon, a magnificent structure. Now, we need to appreciate the significance of the Jewish temple. It was, for one thing, where God was present with his people. It was for another, the very center of worship. And significantly, it was through the temple, through the physical temple, its presence in Jerusalem and Judea and the world, that the glory of God was revealed to the nations of the earth. And it was completely destroyed. A tough time for the people of God. Into which the prophet Haggai, And when you see prophet, that's God, God's voice speaking through his prophet, spoke. A repeated refrain through the text, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Who is the prophecy to? Two groups of people. Number one, this is the primary audience in view, the leaders of God's people. And two in particular, Zerubbabel, the governor of Judea and Joshua the high priest. Notice in the text, they are both referred to with the phrase son of. So, Zerubbabel is son of Shealtiel, and Joshua is son of Jehozadak. Why that reference? Partly for identification, but also, and just tuck this away for later, it reminds us that there are successive generations in God's people to whom the baton is passed. Uh, One group recipients are the leaders of God's people. The other group uh, are the remnant of the people of God back in Jerusalem. The remnant, small in number compared to those before, and the remnant, those who had remained uh, distinctive and faithful during the exile. Now, what's the message of this prophecy? Um, To the original readers, here's the message. Rebuild my temple for my glory as your priority. That's effectively the message of the book. Rebuild my temple um, as your priority for my glory. The message of the prophecy comes in four parts. Just have a look at the text in front of you. Uh, Part 1 goes 1, chapter 1 through 1 through 15. You can see it's signaled by chapter 1, verse 1, in the second year of Darius the king, etc., etc., the word of the Lord came from Haggai. The second bit, chapter 2, 1 to 9, that's our section tonight. It begins 2, 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came to, so on and so forth. The third bit, chapter 2, 10 to 19. Fourth bit, chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. And uh, just appreciate the precise dating. So part one, um, here's my question for you tonight. Uh, hands up if you know the answer. Um, what was the date um, that is signaled by the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month and the first day of the month? You all were thinking, it's the 29th of August, 520 B.C. It is. That's the equivalent date. I didn't give you the chance to answer because someone might know. <laughs> um, and the second kind of oracle from uh, Haggai, part two, our passage tonight, 17th of October, 520 B.C. So less than two months. Pretty quick, isn't it? And part three and part four on the same day, the 18th of December, 520. Less than four months cover the four occasions Haggai prophesied. Now, I don't think we should read too much into that other than the fact that there are periods where God's Word comes with an intensity in a particular situation, really because God is earnest in wanting to speak uh, to us. And We know that in our own lives, individually or corporately as churches, sometimes it just seems that God is speaking intensely uh, to us. Maybe through this prophecy, well, He has been speaking um, in that sense to me. Now, in each bit, four bits, uh, four oracles, if you like, from the prophet, each bit is structured similarly. Two things happen. Firstly, God reveals through the prophet what you're thinking or what I'm thinking, or what God's people are thinking. He exposes to them exactly what they're thinking, and what their heart state is. And of course, when you hear a prophecy, if you were back then, and it exposes your true heart state, you'd sit up and notice, gosh, God is describing through his prophet exactly how I'm feeling. And then secondly, In light of that, God speaks to his people and their leaders words of instruction, challenge, and encouragement. Now, in section one that uh, we looked at with Rohan last week, uh, the the state of the people's hearts that God exposed was, and you can just see it there in chapter one, verse uh, two, thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And what would have been happening in Jerusalem is all the leaders and others were saying, look, this isn't the time to rebuild the temple. There's a lot of other stuff to do. Let's just settle down and let's sort out our own houses first. And that's exactly what they were thinking. And God's prophet says, this is what you're thinking. Okay, And, and then... God challenges them as to where their true priorities lie, why are they building their own houses and not the house of God? The glory of God is fundamental to who they are. And then there is an immediate response from the leaders and the people to obey the voice of the Lord. And in response, just tuck this away as well, in response to their obedience to God's word, God then promises. Uh, so critical in any period of history in which we live as Christians or believers, obedience to God's Word. And God stirs up the hearts of the leaders, and the people start building the temple. Now, we come to part two, uh, two one to nine, the second time God speaks to his prophet. It's less than two months later. Uh, we know from the date it is the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, I suspect they would have had a few days off, a couple of public holidays, getting ready to go back to the work. And uh, as they go back to the work, they're simply overwhelmed by the scale of the task. Now, God reveals through his prophet what God's people and the leaders are thinking. So, verse 3 of chapter 2. So, this is what they're thinking. Uh, So this is what I suspect they would have been saying. Is there anyone here who can remember what Solomon's temple was actually like? Has anyone got a photo? And what was beginning to happen is they were looking back to these glorious days pre-exile in the temple. How do you see it now? Is it not nothing in your eyes? I mean, it was nothing in their eyes. They didn't have anything like the materials that Solomon had. I mean, Solomon was the richest person on the earth, the height of the monarchy. And the temple they were building and their architects' plans and their QS drawings or whatever it was, it just looked pretty pretty pathetic compared to what had been the case in the past. And the discouragement sets in. And if we read the parallel historical books, Ezra and Nehemiah, there are all kinds of opposition, internal and external, to the rebuilding work, like two of the key builders have fallen out, and there's kind of planning permission being refused, and the authorities anyway. It's just really discouraging, especially compared to to the past. And in light of this, God speaks to the people and their leaders, and we'll come back to this by way of application to us. So I'm just going to skirt over this. He says, verse 4, yet, which is a lovely little word, and it means, yes, I know that it looks daunting, and I know that you don't have the stuff you need. Be strong, be strong, be strong, and work. Pick up your shovels, For I am with you according to my covenant. And that's the covenant between God and Moses. Um, A covenant of blessing. A covenant that they will overcome their enemies. A covenant that God will treat them with grace and mercy if they obey his words. For I am with you, declares the Lord, according to the covenant that I made. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. It's a wonderful series of encouragements. And then a glorious promise about the future. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 6, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory. Now, they didn't know that these words are a promise way down the track for the end of the church age. These words of promise, verse 6 and onwards, have not yet been fulfilled. But the point is that with their meager resources, they were building a temple that looked as nothing compared to the temple of old that would be used by God in the line of promise ultimately to be a stepping stone to the glory of the new creation. Now, that's a, a, a run through the text really quickly uh, for us um, to, to, to understand what it meant for them then. Post-exile, a really downtime. time. Back in Jerusalem, the temple is, well, there isn't a temple And they know they have to rebuild it because that's how God presents himself with his people. It's how God reveals his glory to the nations. And they're saying, not yet, not yet, not yet. Let's sort out our houses. Let's sort out all of this. Not yet, not yet. And it's not because they're they're kind of wicked or evil. They're not. They're godly people. They just have lost heart. And God says, here's what you're thinking. Be strong, be courageous. Trust me. Obey my words. I have promised. You know my covenant. Do not be afraid. My spirit is with you. And there is a glorious, glorious future if you obey my words. Now, remember that phrase if you obey my words, if you obey my words. And, uh, okay, that's what it meant for them uh, then. What about us now? Our job is not to rebuild the temple. Uh, um, Rohan helped us with this last week really helpfully. The the equivalent is for us to build the church of Christ in the world. Not building, so take that out of the equation, but the living church of Christ, to reach, to build, to train, to send, to take the gospel to the unreached of the of the earth, to have living churches, plan all over cities, to train gospel workers, and to have churches full of people who praise God and, and, and share their faith. Uh, that's the task facing us. How is the glory of God revealed in the old covenant through the temple? How is the glory of God revealed in the world? Uh, Ephesians chapter three, verse ten, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God is revealed. Local churches scattered all over the earth. That's what building the temple means. For us, building the church, not buildings. Uh, they are incidental, uh, far less important than they were in the old covenant, useful still, but only useful for the, the work of the people of God. So that's the equivalent. Now let's go from the setting in uh, Jerusalem in the 6th century to the setting we find ourselves in today. I want to say something about Scotland. I want to say something about uh, England, and I want to say something about uh, chammers And we could say a lot more than uh, these things. Um, I want to suggest to us that it's a tough time for the people of God. And I think, I think we've all probably heard that said a lot. And sometimes we think, well, it's not really, not in my church or it's always been tough or is it really hard at the moment, is it or is it not? I want to suggest to us it is. It is a tough time for the people of God. How do we know that? That as I look out and perhaps look in and perhaps look right in here my own heart to evangelical or Christian churches, leaders, whatever across the UK, there is There is a weariness and there is a beleaguered state all around. That doesn't mean to say there's no steel and drive and vision and clarity, but it is a tough time. Why? Well, let's think of Scotland. Secularism's pace is rapid. Now, we know that. That's all I'm going to say on that. In terms of the church in Scotland, we have lived through and are living through an unusual moment in history. And 10 years ago, if you came to Chalmers, well, it didn't exist 10 years ago. It was St. Catharines. We would have been talking a lot about denominational breakups, the Church of Scotland and stuff. Inevitably, we had to. Ten years on, we don't talk about it very much, rightly, partly because we need to move forward. And one of the real clear messages in Haggai is don't look back. Don't look back. But ten years on, I think we can say this, that the Church of Scotland, Scotland's national church, is now an apostate church. I mean, there's a whole raft of things that have happened in the last 10 years. And what is an apostate church? It is a church that has formally turned away from obedience to the Word of God as the supreme rule of faith and life. What are the implications of that? A lack of witness. I mean, there are 1,300 churches. That's a lack of Witness. The whole body lacks witness. That's been there for a long time. There's a lack of, and I, there are lots of other structures. The Free Church is strong, and we give thanks for that, and the independence, but relatively speaking, numerically, is very small compared to the big ship. A lack of witness and thereby a lack of restraint in the culture. As Will alluded to this morning, the pressure. On Orthodox churches is intense. It just is. Our experience would indicate that. Many of you were not there, many of us who lived through that, it was very intense. The pressure on leaders, the pressure on believers. And uh, another implication that renders us in a tough time is when the national church in a country collapses, and that hasn't happened for 500 years, it's gone through major shifts over 500 years, but it hasn't collapsed as it is now, it leaves a great big gap, and starting over and building again is hard. So one of the ways I've often described that when I'm trying to persuade people to fund training in Scotland. It's a little bit like the last 10 years have seen all sorts of fracture and disintegration, and living churches of no affiliation, and the Free Church of Scotland, which is very strong and a big part of the future in Scotland, have effectively come together at base camp in the fog And everyone has kind of had to learn to work together and stop falling out, and tribalism and parochialism and all that stuff that was the blight for generations is going here, thankfully. And here we are at base camp, and it's all quite exciting, and the fog or the mist begins to clear, and you realize that you're up against Everest, and it's massive. It's massive. And moreover, it's not an easy climb. It's dangerous. And it's a multiply-generational climb. It's going to take generations to scale. So it's tough in that environment. And I think one of the things we need to do as a church is, in the appropriate way, not look back in the wrong way, but look out in the right way and realize the state the country is in. I wonder if we've just slightly lost touch with that, the kind of touch and sense that was very close to us for a while. Let me turn to England. Um, I have lots of conversations with people in England. The Church of England, the established Church of England, which has had a very significant impact on this country, and still does to many evangelical gospel churches, is at a critical point. And come February 2023, there will be a watershed of some form. What is the right strategy? Different people have different views. I want to encourage you to pray for the Church of England Evangelical Council as they seek to hold on to orthodoxy within the world's oldest Anglican church. What will happen in February 2023 and how will people respond is causing real discouragement and weariness amongst leaders, amongst Christians, amongst churches. Added to added to, many of the large evangelical churches in England, churches like St. Helens, St. Ebbs, Christchurch, Foolwood, I mean, they're four great, big, strong churches, have gone through a really difficult time for reasons nothing to do with this. You might think, The devil is trying to take it all down at a critical point. And it's left, and I had a conversation with one of the leaders on Friday night, a gifted, brilliant thinker who I encouraged has a key role to play in the future and to stay on where he is until then. Completely beleaguered, and discouraged. That's England. Recently, I met with someone in London, and they were saying to me that there's so much rivalry and tribalism in England and the church, and that's disappearing here. It is, and we're thankful for that. What about Chalmers, Scotland, England, and Chammers? Well, I think it's fair to say that the last 10 years have created quite some toll, leaving a denomination, establishing a new one, moving around in a van with dodgy garages and all that went with it, buying homes, planting a church. Whose idea was that? And then a global pandemic and then a redevelopment Four point two million pounds, and a pile of people leaving year after year after year to go off to other churches, and all the time, in Scotland, in England, in Chalmers and other churches, spiritual warfare every single day. Plenty room for weariness and discouragement, just genuinely. Let's front up to that, into which God's Word speaks, to whom the leaders of God's people, Zerubbabel and Joshua, whoever they are, just church leaders or elders or whoever it is in the country, people who lead churches. And remember that little point that I mentioned earlier, Zerubbabel, son of, Joshua, son of, the generation that follows. Now, we had one of them preaching this morning, we had one of them preaching last sunday night and we had another preaching two sunday nights ago just just hold on to that pray that they will keep humble and they will i'm sure they're all humble people but isn't that an encouragement the generation that follows one of the big challenges for us Presently, in leadership, is to give the baton of leadership to the next generation before they're too old and before we're too old. And what is the message? Well, the recipients are leaders, but to all the remnant of the people. Now, let me just pause on that. All the remnant of the people. Who are the remnant of the people? Who are the remnant of the people in Scotland or in England or or whatever, and and the, the lines are not straight lines; they are dotted lines. The remnant are the people who hold on to and who believe in the Word of God. It's as simple as that. And they are the people, the clear leaders, and the clear churches, and the people who hold on to the Word of God in the churches are the most beleaguered, strikingly. Not those who have drifted or shifted. They will be in the future. But life is quite sweet. Life is quite sweet for a while when you prize an institution more than the word of God. Because it doesn't affect your day-to-day life. Haggai's message is not about rebuilding the temple. As I said, it's about building the church of Jesus Christ, not physical buildings, spiritual buildings, reaching, building, training, and sending. And the two big things that are going on in Scotland and indeed England are training and planting. It's what the New Testament encourages us to do, and moreover, it is a national vision, and that is beginning to happen. Now with that, we come to just one or two of the details in the text by way of encouragement. I want to spend our last uh, five or so minutes on verses uh, four onwards. And encourage you to go away and reflect on these, and I'm going to certainly do that. We might come back in another context to these particular uh, verses. Uh, Firstly, they remind us don't look back in the wrong way. Look out at the reality of the struggles, but don't look back to the glory days of the 19th century or the glory days of the 50 or um, before all this kind of stuff happened. The danger, if you do that, is that you just give in and give up. That's probably an encouragement to those of you who are older. There's more propensity to look back in the wrong way. And then these wonderful words. Think of the evangelical Christian leaders you know. I'm thinking of the one I spoke to on Friday. Many others I'm in contact with. The next generation spread across the country, be strong. Be strong. And to all the people in all the living gospel churches, on the back foot at the moment in Scotland and England and so on and so forth, be strong, all you people. And do what? That wonderful word tucked in this glorious passage. Work. Pick up your shovels. One of the one of the things I find most I'm, this is a little bit of a confession discouraging is I spend so much of my time going around the country trying to raise money to train people. You know, it's so hard to get it. It's like getting blood out of a stone. You know what God's going to do in the UK is going to liberate Christian people who earn hundred thousand to give fifty thousand to the gospel. It's called gospel patronage. If you go back in history, nothing would have happened without that. People like Wesley and Whitfield, Thomas Chalmers, nothing would have happened. And what's happening now in Scotland is the pace is outstripping the funding. There are more people to train than there is funding, which is the right way round. But oh, that it would become easier to raise money to train people like Will and Rohan and Freddie and Amy, who starts next week, and another hundred. Be strong and work. Pick up your shovels and graft, or give, perhaps. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And echoing in that phrase is Joshua, about to enter the promised land. That's where it all comes from. I am with you. I am your God. Question. How do we know that God is with us? Can we be sure? Why is he going to be with us and and, and not other? The one way you can know if God is with you is because he is with us, verse 5, according to the covenant that he made when he came out of Egypt. Now, we're not in the old covenant. We're not in the Mosaic covenant. We are in the new covenant. And there's one ratchet in every covenant of God, and that is we obey God's voice. The one surefire thing to know that God is with you is to submit to the word of God, his word as the rule of faith and life. And that has never been harder in the last 250 years than it is now. There were many periods in the last 500 years where the Word of God fell on indifferent ears. But there was always an orthodoxy in the culture. The Word of God now is not falling on indifferent ears. It is falling, and this was Will's sermon this morning, on ears of people who hate the Lord Jesus and living churches. But God says, I am with you. According to the covenant, which is obedience to his word, and my spirit remains in your midst. Think of Revelation. Lots of uh, young people. So we're talking about the next generation, the next generation beyond that. We're all off at contagious studying Revelation. Think of the the churches at the beginning of Revelation, it's critical for any living local church to face up to the question, does the Spirit of God remain in our midst or not? Is the lamp burning? And the lamp only burns where there's fidelity to the Word of God and the gospel. Now, I would love I'd love there to be revival tomorrow or the next day or in a month or a year or this, that, and the other. Um, God can do what God can do. If you had to pin me to the wall, I think we've got a, a few generations till that comes again. Our job is to put the scaffolding up, to build, to plant, to train, all that kind of stuff. But there's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful harvest in the end. And when God's people put their poor quality bricks into the second temple, they were building for that wonderful harvest. And when we stretch ourselves and send out another gospel partner and train people and send them and plant churches and do all the rest of it and try to Eliminate tribalism and parochialism, and build a spirit of partnership, and encourage people up and down the country. Just listen to this; this is what it's all for. And it, it doesn't come to sort of arrogance, and, and arrogance in, in evangelical leadership is, is, is there, and, it, and it, it just leads to disaster. But for most, there is a humility and a brokenness and a weariness and a discouragement. Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord. The exile all these centuries ago was like a refining fire. We're going through something like a refining fire in a church in the West. Pray that we'll be part of that remnant that holds firm to the word of God. But those who do face deep discouragement in the present and they look at what they're building and they think this is pathetic. It's hard. The mountain is too high. And yet bit by bit by bit, we're building for eternity. And, and the, key, the key in it all, the key in the covenant is my people, Obey my voice. That's what we have to do. Let's keep on doing it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that this prophecy and these messages will steady us, will strengthen us, will give us perspective and courage. We pray, Lord, tonight for the Church of England with uh, real earnestness for its stability. We pray for evangelical churches and leaders within it, for wisdom, for unity. We pray, Lord, for those who are most beleaguered. We pray that you would give them strength and courage, and the absence of fear, and a consciousness of your Spirit, and above all keep them thorough to the Word of God, and to nothing else, no buildings, no assets, in the end, but to the Word of God, and to Jesus Christ. And for our own country here, we pray that you would fill our hearts with that encouragement and strengthening and an honesty about the challenge and help us, Lord, to embrace and to relish the many encouragements around us and help us to keep on training and sending and training and sending and training and sending and building partnership across this country. And we pray all these things with a deep sense of the risk of thinking that we might have arrived and we're doing stuff that is right. Help us, Lord, to be humble and circumspect and broken and needing to hear your words of strengthening and encouragement. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.